Hey everybody, thank you for tuning in to AM Live. It's Sunday evening and a lot to discuss. Michael, are you there? I am. Uh, I'm just doing my patriotic duty and tweeting out a link to this call-in room. So give oh, me, thank you. Thank you. For, give, thank give me three seconds. Thank you for your service. Thank you for your service. So, a lot to discuss. Let me break down where I think things stand, and then I want to spend most of the time tonight just taking calls because on the last episode we did, there were a lot of callers who were not able to get through, and I want to get to everybody uh, who calls in tonight. So I do not plan on speaking very long. Let me just start with the bad news. So Russia, as people have probably seen, has put its nuclear forces on alert. It's not the highest level of nuclear alert possible, but obviously any move in that direction is ominous and scary, and it speaks to the dangers of this conflict. And then also, meanwhile, Russia is moving in something called thermobaric rockets into Ukraine, and those have been used in the Saudi-led war on Yemen, and they have the capacity to inflict mass casualties. So far, and there are limits in what I can say about this because I'm not a military guy at all, but from what I can gather from sources that I trust, Russia has not unleashed very heavy firepower so far. It's gone into Ukraine so far, it's targeted military sites, and basically been, as I understand it, been deploying its forces to show what it could do. But it's avoided major civilian population areas. There's been all this talk on CNN and the New York Times of heavy fighting in Kiev, but they never specify who's doing the fighting. They don't say actually who's doing it, and what appears to me uh, is going on, and if anybody feels differently, I'd, be curi- I just, I'd appreciate your take. But what it looks like is basically all those weapons that were distributed to people around Kiev are being used by people there, right? including gangs, from what I'm hearing. But in terms of actual firefights inside Kiev, they don't specify who it is because I just don't think that's actually Russians fighting in Kiev. Now, not that that isn't a possibility, but it just has not happened yet. There was a bombing around Kiev last, last night, but it was of a fuel deep, depot on the outside of the city at a military base. So the kind of full-scale Russian invasion of major cities like Kiev hasn't happened yet, and that's a good thing. And another good thing is that there's supposed to be peace talks tomorrow on the Belarusian border between uh, Russian and Ukrainian officials. And... That could possibly, if I'm being optimistic, that could end the whole thing because so far right now, although civilians have died, there have been casualties, there's many refugees, this is nowhere near as bad as, as it could be. So if we want to draw some note of optimism, I would, I would put it in the fact that at least there's been this agreement to hold peace talks tomorrow morning, and we'll obviously see what comes of that. Michael, do you want to... Uh, Say anything before we uh, take calls. Yeah. Um, well, first, just on the note of Russia apparently activating its nuclear arsenal into a new phase of readiness. Uh, for this, for information on this, because clearly I'm not an expert on that subject, I've been looking at the feed of Pavel Podvig, who I'd recommend anybody uh, reference if they're interested. Twitter handle is at Russian forces seems this person has been a specialist on this subject for years. And uh, even he seems uncertain as to what it actually means that Putin announced, quote, a special mode of combat duty of the deterrence 
forces because uh, it doesn't seem to neatly track with like the different gradations of readiness that might be activated in a variety of different scenarios. So I think there's some somewhat troubling ambiguity there. And I think it all, for me, uh, reinforces why, as a non-Russian citizen, as a journalist and just somebody who wants to live in a world that ideally isn't subject to a nuclear holocaust, uh, the main thing we should probably be concerned about at this point is how this could escalate further than it already has. And that could include some sort of direct hostilities with U.S. or NATO forces. Um, Hopefully that's a remote possibility, but we just have now word today that the EU plans to send fighter jets to Ukraine. I don't know how logistically they're claiming that will work or who will actually be piloting the jets. I mean, is it possible that a military figure who is a a NATO member would be piloting those jets. I don't know. Um, You have a number of U.S. troop movements around uh, the region, whether it's the Baltic states or in Poland and so on and so forth, Romania, that seems to me have uh, increased the likelihood that there could be some unforeseen incident or miscommunication. I mean, the history of the Cold War is fraught with uh, examples of some miscommunication, whether on the part of the Soviet forces or the American forces, that led to a really harrowing scenario where uh, outright nuclear exchange was on the verge of actually being carried out. Um, So this seems perilous to me along those lines. And... um, you know, as far as the peace talks, uh, I have as much information as anybody else does and therefore relatively limited insight into what that is supposed to be accomplishing. But I would note that Zelensky in tweeting today, his openness to taking part in this peace talk says that he doesn't even believe in what the outcome would be. Um, so, you know, does that mean what do you, that? What do you mean he doesn't believe in what the outcome would be? You know, the the the, tra- the translation is a little bit questionable. Uh, I would have to pull up the actual tweet, but like the to paraphrase what he said was, "Hold on a second, just give me two seconds." Uh, he says, "I do not really believe in the outcome of this meeting." Okay, um, but let them try to, so that later, not a single citizen of Ukraine has any doubt that I, as president, tried to stop the war. Which, you know, I don't know how that's a – is that a – does that sound like a statement where that would precede legitimate peace talks? Yeah. seems doubtful to me. Um, yeah. It also seems doubtful to me that at this stage, Russia would just be willing to withdraw its full kind of expanse of forces that it's already deployed. I mean, it seems like they're fairly invested at this juncture. Um I, don't, I think you. I think you might have referenced the thermobarbaric weapons that have been apparently uh, deployed, yes. um, which are pretty frightening scenes. So you know what? 
it could just be some sort of theater. I mean, who knows? Uh, who knows where it will even happen? I mean, everybody should be humble um, about what they can project at this point. And, uh, you know, Aaron, before we take uh, calls, you know, I, th I think it's worth addressing the sort of meta point, at least briefly, uh, which is that you, know, you and I and a handful of others who, yes, did adopt a tone of skepticism about the likelihood of an imminent invasion. Um, we have been instructed that we must go onto the public square and lower our trousers and accept whippings um, for the next several weeks or months or even years while, uh, I don't know, Marcia Wheeler tars and feathers us. Um, and, you know, I think a lot of that criticism tends to be, in, you know, to use a cliche, bad faith from people who already don't like us. Uh, but at the same time, you know, I, I, I did try to introspect a bit, and it's not totally unreasonable to me that somebody who followed my reporting or you know, commentary on the subject would have taken as a general thrust uh, away from that, that I was disinclined to believe that a invasion was imminent. You know, I, uh, my, my take on this really was evidence-based, as it had been, you know, throughout Russiagate, and I know how, as yours was, which is that, you know, if the U.S. intelligence officials who are being anonymously quoted, quoted everywhere in the media are so certain that this is an inevitability, can't they provide something tangible that the public can independently verify? So we're not just relying on these like whispers from officials whose identities we don't know and who might have ulterior motives. Um, so I think there's like an epistemic defensibility in our uh, posture still. And I, I know both you and I did try to add caveats where we allowed for the possibility uh, of an invasion. But at the same time, you know, it is probably the case that if people were just relying on us solely for analysis on this issue, they might have been surprised um, that events have unfolded in the way they are. So what, so like, I guess, I guess the question I would put to you, you know, I know you want to get to questions quickly, but the question I would put to you before that is, you know, what, um, what, what do you think, you got perhaps wrong uh, or maybe was your perception distorted in any way? I mean, I think mine probably was insofar as I put excess stock um, ex or you know, excessive stock in what I was hearing from Ukrainian officials who would actually have the most to lose and do have the most to lose now uh, from events transpiring the way that the U.S. was projecting um, and I think it's an interesting question of like mass psychology as to why the most adamant people who were rejecting that an invasion was actually imminent were Ukrainians who otherwise would have no incentive that's discernible to me to, you know, um, repudiate the U.S. I mean, given that they're uh, a client state of the U.S. essentially and need to remain in its good graces for, you know, funding and training of their military, for economic uh, support and, and all, all manner of other uh, other factors here. So I, mean, I think that was probably, um, I don't know if you want to call it a blind spot, but that, that, that contributed to my maybe um, analytical drift here in a way that possibly did not um, appreciate the, uh, the, the severity of what was to come. So I, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. Yeah. I definitely think I was hindered by a subconscious bias against anything the national security state says that's definitely a factor and that's that comes from years of seeing all these claims fall apart and being used for cynical purposes but but as you also say the main thing was that ukraine was so not on board 
with all the claims that were coming from the Biden administration, all these warnings. They kept insisting that the intelligence wasn't there. And it wasn't just Ukraine. It was European allies, too. There were a bunch of anonymous officials who spoke to The Washington Post, The Wall Street Journal, saying that they hadn't seen the intelligence and that basically Biden wasn't sharing anything. There was one official in The Washington Post who told The Washington Post that what the Biden administration was saying publicly at the podium was no different than what they were sharing privately. And so that was the main reason why I just I just I I didn't buy it. Now, where I made a mistake was not taking Putin more seriously because Putin did make threats. He did establish a red line about NATO expansion and also other things, too, because let's forget. Let's not forget. This is not just about Ukraine and NATO. This is a broader encirclement of Russia by NATO and also by uh, weapons systems, by uh, by bases in Poland that the U.S. has installed ever since it tore up the ABM treaty in, in 2003 that can hit Russia. And Putin has made clear for very for a long time that this is a red line that eventually he would respond, and he threatened late last year some kind of response. And I, I didn't take that seriously enough, or at least I didn't think that that would include a full-on invasion of Ukraine. And I also think, too, that I didn't fully take into account the suffering of the people inside the Donbass, because I remember for them, this war did not start last week. It started basically in 2014 when the U.S. helped overthrow the government in, in uh, Ukraine, and installed a new government or helped install a new government that then launched an attack on the Russian-speaking population, including this awful incident in Odessa where dozens of people were burned alive by Nazis and also banned the Russian language. And so that war has been going on for a long time. And inside Russia, and again, I'm not a, I have actually very little insight into Russian politics. It's not something I follow. I, I, I follow how Russia is discussed and confronted here in the West via Russiagate or, or anything else. So I, I didn't, I think, fully appreciate just how much powerful a narrative, how powerful a concern it is inside Russia is the suffering of the Russian-speaking people in the Donbass and how Putin was actually under a lot of pressure for a long time to do something about it. There are people who say he should have done what he's doing now a long time ago. So, and I'll, and the, but there's, there's one more thing, too, which is that there's also the possibility that for all these dire U.S. warnings, um, that it's possible that U.S. actions actually uh, basically triggered something that Putin would otherwise might not have done. Because remember, he made offers. He was saying we could avoid conflict if you agree to some uh, basic terms. No further expansion of NATO, including to Ukraine, and taking out offensive weapons from NATO countries. And... The Biden administration, if it knew, if it was so confident that Russia was going to invade, um, unless, of course, Russia got its terms met, then that, to me, that makes it even more reckless what they did. Because basically, they put Ukraine in this awful position where they knew that uh, if Russia could not get a ban on NATO for Ukraine, that Russia would take action. And even though the, the aim of having Ukraine and NATO, it doesn't enhance U.S. security at all. It, in fact, makes everyone's security uh, even more in danger. The fact that they and, and also they realize that Ukraine is not going to be joining NATO anyway, at least for a long time, especially because Germany and France are so opposed to it. To me, it was even more reckless to basically risk a war over something that is so ultimately 
not just dangerous, but just trivial. I mean, for the principle of letting Ukraine join a hostile military alliance in theory, they're willing to sacrifice it to a Russian invasion. It's just, um, it's, um, it makes this thing, this, it makes their behavior all the more reckless. But yes, in terms of, in terms of my own approach, I was definitely, I think, on Twitter and uh, in places like here, too cavalier. But in writing, where you have more time to be, you know, measured and thoughtful, I did talk about the prospect of a full-blown war. And I did say that it can be avoided if the U.S. basically abandons its core principles of expanding hegemony and war profiteering. Well, I certainly wouldn't know anything about being cavalier on Twitter. So what you're (laughs) acknowledging there is a foreign concept to me. I would also just add that, you know, throughout this, you had a dynamic that you and I talked about actually on our last call-in last a week ago today with this open source intelligence phenomenon seeming to kind of act in concert with what the U.S. intelligence was saying. And a lot of that open source intelligence was observable for anybody to see on on Twitter and, and other um, networks. And... You know, I was cognizant of that intelligence. I was following it myself. But the, the thing is, a lot of this OSINT stuff really is, you know, propagandistic in that it's specifically tailored about furthering a certain narrative. And maybe at times, yes, clearly, the narrative that's, that's trying to be furthered can come to fruition. <laughs> but still, you have to have a heaping dose of skepticism when um, taking any of that into consideration. Now, I, I would also want to know, just because I actually said this on Colin last weekend with you, uh, that some of these OSINT guys who maybe I was a little bit too, uh, I don't know, dismissive of, like um, Michael uh, Kaufman at this think tank, um, CNA, and and others, you know, cl- their their projections seem to have been, been borne out. Um, so... You know, they were on to something, um, but the, the baseline of skepticism, I think, still is operative now, um, even if some adjustments clearly have to be made, at least uh, you know, from my standpoint, about what Putin slash the kind of Russian state is, is capable of doing. Um, they clearly had the, cap- the capacity, uh, but, you know, a lot of the most kind of incisive Russia commentators who have no brief for Putin or the U.S. and who I've relied on for the past several years in kind of getting insight into what the thinking was in among kind of like sane actors in, in Moscow and so forth. I mean, they were deeply, deeply skeptical that anything like this was really in the cards. So I think that definitely informed my perception um, in, in kind of, you know, banging the skeptical drum. Um, and, I, and I also think that there's some truth to what... By the way, some, Michael, Michael yeah. great, great idea for your memoir title, Banging the Skeptical Drum. <laughs> what do you think? Yeah, yeah, the, the saddest song of, of all time. <laughs> um, and, and also, you know, um, what was I going to say? Your, your hilarious, hilarious <laughs> joke killed my train of thought. Um, but maybe I'll think of it. Um, well, that's a, listen, Michael, we have so many calls. That yeah, yeah let's go to the calls. So, now, I'm going to say this now, everybody. We, we have so many people. I want to hear from everybody. So I'm going to have to enforce some uh, time constraints. Just, but I'll try to be as, you know, um, as uh, lax as possible. Okay. I, I remember just very quickly. It's like 30 seconds. Okay. okay. 
So, you know, one thing that was that I was called, quote unquote, called out for a couple weeks ago now by some, I guess, pseudo anonymous sub stacker and Twitter personality who seems to be some sort of like neo reactionary in Russia. I don't know who it is, but whoever it is, they were, you know, not any kind of hysterical, you know, Russian interference proponent dating back to 2016 or anything. And yet they were putting forth an argument that Russia actually was assembling its military capabilities that made a war extremely likely. And they put a probability on, I think, north of 90%. And they uh, criticized me in particular for committing an error in pattern recognition, meaning that I was transposing the patterns that I had observed over the course of Russiagate, which was a primarily domestic kind of propaganda campaign in the United States, to Russia's kind of military posturing in Ukraine. And that, that transference of pattern recognition was fallacious in the judgment of this person. And I think there was some truth to that. I mean, the, I guess the slight irony is that I was aware that he had accused me of that. And yet I still thought that the defensible attitude on my part was one of skepticism until there was evidence that the invasion was actually going to happen. And then once it happened, I don't see anybody denying it now. I mean, so again, it's really, an, uh, to me, was an empirical question. I guess the, 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 the dispute comes to how much empirical weight did you put on the evidence prior to the invasion actually being announced through, you know, whether it's through these open source intelligence sources or uh, official prognostications and, and what, you know, or, or were you re- determined to kind of reserve judgment until it was no longer in dispute? Um, so now that's another element here, but yeah, we should go to uh, callers. Okay. So Eric, you are up. Hello. Welcome. Hello. Hi. Hi. So, I guess in terms of that meta point, you know, I think, and I think I speak for a lot of people, and I'll try to keep it short, but you guys represent the people who uh, uh, actually do deal in a real concept of good faith, as opposed to people who cite good faith as some kind of shibboleth or whatever, just try to, you know, out people, and that's why you have fans. So, in terms of being wrong, I don't really see quite how how you have much to apologize for, um, because you're allowed to get things wrong, but um, at the same time, I do think of that lovely story of the boy who cried wolf, and perhaps, uh, in this case, it's the boy who cried bear, and you were the ones who were saying, perhaps, you know, the U.S. intelligence agency, well, maybe if they want us to trust them, they shouldn't lie all the time, and they shouldn't expect us to believe things without evidence all the time, and have such a bad track record. But in this case, yeah, uh, they were amassing troops at the border, and then the border, uh, they crossed the border, and um, I guess um, one person who I think has been really good on this is Scott Ritter. I don't know if you've talked to him yet. But the way he, he puts it out there, um, and this leads to my question kind of because it is kind of a mixed meta discourse question, but the way he puts it out there is that, like, there is no going back now, even if they negotiate. Um, you know, I'd like to hold out hope that it means that they're going to re- – that, that they can come up with a peace agreement that, you know, Putin retreats to just the Donbass and just uh, Luhansk as opposed to, you know, going ahead and breaking the back of the current Ukrainian state. But if it's not going that direction – you know, we're going to see, uh, I don't know if any, either of you, you know, you, you guys spend a lot of time on Twitter. Have you seen people ever say, uh, kill all Nazis? Um, because, you know, what Scott Ritter is saying is that he doesn't believe that, you know, that it's proper for Russia to invade and to um, bring in Chechens to have all those lists of people. That's a, That was another story, right, that they have, Russia has lists. 
And Scott Ritter, he tends to say, yeah, they do have lists. They have lists of the Azov Battalion, and they're going to bring in Chechens to wipe them out and kill them. And it's just funny to me because of all the way that, well, it's not funny. It's actually very serious, of course. But the way that the, you know, the, the way people are about identity politics, you know, uh, um, and trying to interpret this, you know, my Kuwaiti friend and I went to the protest and he's, you know, taking it very personally. Um, he's very much in the, in the mood mode of nuclear war should be on the table. I tried to pin him down on that. You know, I tried to tell him, I mean, if Saddam had nukes, right. But, um, you know, it's very dangerous because it's this idea of the person, the oppressor, talking about the oppressed person because, you know, you've got the two little oblasts or the two little people's republics or whatever you call them, and then they're surrounded by a hostile Ukraine. But Ukraine is surrounded by a hostile Russia. But Russia is surrounded by a hostile uh, uh, U.S.-led uh, global hegemony. So um, I guess that's the question I want to ask is, you know, do you guys see in the future, I mean, I don't know, have you heard that prediction and what you think of that, that, you know, what, what's com- what's on the... What's on the order, what's coming, is that um, they're going to do something like, you know, a pogrom against, you know, quote-unquote Nazis. And the, the point Ritter said was that, you know, he doesn't believe in he believes in international law. Like, they should be put on trial, right? So <laughs> if you, if you yeah, really think well, that they were responsible look, for, for atrocities. So that uh, I'll, I'll hang up on there because that's a yeah. very long question. But thank you so much for you guys. And you guys have you. nothing to do Well, good. And I'm not apologizing, just to be clear. I, um, I apologize for, well, you know. I think my Twitter was a bit too cocky sometimes, but whatever. It's Twitter. That's what it's there for. Well, you know, I, terms, I, I, but, but I, look, I also don't sorry. want to dwell too much on our predictions, and I, I think we talked about it enough. I, I think uh, what's happening in Ukraine is, is much more important, and in terms of the the prospects of, uh, you know, Russia mass killing neo-Nazi forces inside Ukraine, Putin did talk about denazification of Ukraine, and. As of now, I mean, after this, I definitely take his threat seriously. And so I would not be surprised if that is a part of their aim to go after these neo-Nazi forces like the Azov Battalion, that they're not like a huge percentage of the military, but they are an outsized influence. They played an outsized influence in the Maidan coup in 2014. There was just recently a clip posted on Twitter, and I'll, I'll link to it. In the show notes for this episode. Yeah, can I talk about that clip? Because it was funny because I was I was scrolling through my own Instagram feed and I have a gay friend who was talking about, you know, the gay rights in Ukraine versus in Russia, you know, supporting LGBT Ukrainians. But then it was funny because it was the same day I saw your clip yeah. where the guy says, you know, well, if it weren't for if it weren't for the Azov Battalion, Maidan would have just been a gay pride parade. And, you exactly. know, you get the sense this was a guy who does not like gay pride parades, right? Exactly. He also said that even if we were 8% of the presence in Maidan, we were 90% of the effect. And that's why in America you have this group, the three percenters, like, hello. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, and so I would not be surprised if Russia does try to attack them. I, I think they, I mean, for all we know, they already are. It's, Russia doesn't give details about its operations, so it's, it, it's, it's difficult to get a handle on what's actually happening. But yeah. I, I certainly, after this, take Putin's threats very, very seriously. And there's because Zelensky is Jewish, there's this tendency to reflexively dismiss any claims about a, a, a neo-Nazi problem inside Ukraine. But it's very, very real. Well, and Zelensky doesn't I, I, I control also, the Azov Battalion, right? Yeah, I, I also think that, you know, one thing maybe I overlooked was that maybe in the past month or so, I saw that Putin made some sort of visit to a World War II memorial in Russia. 
And, you know, this is something he's done, obviously, just as a matter of course over the years. But there seemed to be like a certain tenor to it that differed from the past. And, and the mythology of World War II looms, I would think, even larger in Russia than it does in the U.S. And it's certainly huge in the U.S. and, and you know, the U.K. and so on. Um, and I think the denazification kind of mantra, that which, it, which is what he has been kind of uh, repeating, and that was declared by him as an imperative on the night of the invasion being announced, um, that strikes me as an effort to tie this current campaign to like the fulfillment of the historic legacy of the Russian people in uh, their kind of victory in World War II, which kind of indicates kind of an existential drive here that goes beyond just sort of, you know, some sort of territorial expansionism or some kind of lesser geopolitical kind of motive. It, it kind of gets to almost the core of the how the, the Russian the Russian state is currently constituted. Maybe that's an over-extrapolation for me, but that's sort of no, what no, I've I, uh, inferred. And, and look, too, you know, the neo-Nazis have also been a problem for Zelensky. When he was taking part in negotiations over, imp- over implementing the Minsk Accords, which is the diplomatic settlement on record reached already, agreed to by the Ukrainian government and the rebels in the east, in which the Donbass would be demilitarized in return for autonomy. He faced rallies from neo-Nazi forces who were threatening to launch a Maidan coup against him. And he's talked often about how even if he wanted to fully implement the Minsk Accords, that politically he couldn't survive. And to me, that's an obvious reference to the far-right fascist inside his country. The only counterweight to that, as Anatole Levin, who's uh, a, a fellow at the Quincy Institute and a longtime journalist covering Russia and Ukraine, pointed out, the only counterweight to the neo-Nazis' opposition to Minsk, a.k.a. peace inside Ukraine, would be U.S. pressure. If the U.S. stepped in and say, we support a full implementation of the Minsk Accords, but they haven't because I don't think they're interested in reaching peace inside Ukraine. They're interested in using it as basically cannon fodder. And again, for a much larger thing, this is not just about holding on to Ukraine potentially one day joining NATO. This is also about enforcing a posture that the U.S. has established around Russia where they have military bases in Poland with missiles that can hit Moscow just hundreds of miles away. And Russia is now trying to basically use Ukraine as, an, as a tool that could roll back all that. And so far, the U.S. is not willing to give it up. But perhaps yeah. that will change. Perhaps that will change. Is more, unfortunately, the, the, the situation we're heading into is that for, uh, as of right now, it looks as if people are going to have to die inside Ukraine for any of this to be scaled back. And that's just awful. It's awful that Ukraine is being put in that position. Yeah, and also just quickly on the meta point, which I agree we shouldn't dwell on, but I do think was important to address, at least for me, because a lot of what I do, and I know what you do, Aaron, although I can't speak for you, is in the realm of media criticism and in the realm of the American media getting a lot of stuff flagrantly and systematically wrong and never making amends for it or accounting it for it in every any significant way, and also the incentive structure that's operative in the U.S. media, kind of um, rewarding people who get stuff disastrously wrong and kind of giving them added prestige and prominence despite their chronic wrongness. So 
Um, although clearly, you know, whether you and I and like a handful of others were significantly wrong it is nowhere near uh, of the same significance as what's actually happening in Ukraine. You know, I think from the standpoint of, you know, transparency and some semblance of self-accountability, it, it was, at least for me, something that needed to be gotten out of the way before we get into the more substantive analysis of the situation, which is uh, what I did. And, you know, actually somebody in my, who I know personally made a point to me similar to what you made, which is that, uh, Eric, which is that, you know, I don't think you have anything to apologize for because, you know, X, Y, and Z, and you added these, you know, qualifiers where you're allowed for the possibility of an invasion and so on and so forth. And I, you know, I take that, um, I take that, that point. But I, I also think that, you know, if people genuinely got a mistaken impression of how events will unfold based at least in part on my reporting or commentary or what, what have you, that at least warrants uh, an accounting, and uh, you know, a lot of the criticism does tend to be just from trolls and, and whatever. But that's kind of nothing you can really do about that. But if you know, if, if there are people who were you know feel they might have been misinformed or at least got an inaccurate perception in part of, based on what I did, you know, that that compels me to take some kind of stock of that. Anyway, that that that's my thinking. But I but we shouldn't uh, spend a whole lot more time. And I'll, I'll just close with this, yeah. and I'll just say that Putin's got Ukraine hostage. Well, you've got to negotiate with the hostage taker so he doesn't start killing the hostages, and that's not what the U.S. is doing. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, thank you, Eric. Thank you. And the Reverend Edmund, Edmund you are next. So, Reverend, there's a microphone icon in the bottom right, which you have to click to unmute yourself. Okay? So let me just use that occasion to remind everybody that when you come in to speak, there's a microphone button in the bottom right, and you have to click that so we can hear you. And Pradeep, you are up. They're all speechless, Aaron. They're also touched, Michael, by your Mia culpa. <laughs> Pradeep, are you there? Can, yeah. Oh, there you are. Can okay. you hear me? Yes. Hi. Okay. Hi. Thank you for um, all your commentary. Thank you and Michael and all that. So my question is uh, somewhat meta also. I've been uh, trying to follow um, commentary and uh, various analyses from both sides. And it's been very hard to get to the truth for me. You know, as you already mentioned, there is this very strong establishment of proof talking points. And any mild deviation is being met with some serious emotional blowback and accusations of uh, rooting for war and death and not lacking empathy and whatnot. And I have seen this not just in this debate, but also in few other debates that I've been in uh, recently, the Freedom Convoy and a few other things in science. So my question to you is, you probably dealt with this for years on various things. As you said, you've been uh, following national security establishment and how they've been fucking up for all these years, right? How do you navigate this space without taking all these uh, blowback personally and try get to the um, truth despite uh, some serious pervasive propaganda operations in play? Thank you. So sorry, Pradeep, I don't quite get the question. How do you navigate all the propaganda without taking it personally? Can you clarify a little bit? Yeah, so I mean, for example, I'm in the uh, I'm a professor at one of the American universities, right? 
So we tend to engage in these political debates too often mm-hmm. within science as well as outside. One of the things I am concerned about is people judging us for our political commentary and taking it elsewhere. You know, so any public commentary that seems uh, what's the word wrong in their judgment actually has um, consequences in our professional lives. So you've probably seen that in other areas too, right? Right, right, right. Yeah. Well, so was, yeah, yeah. That's sorry, where I was. Yeah, go ahead. The question to make it more simple is there is a serious industrial scale propaganda operation pervasive in our informational channels and streams, right? Mm-hmm. How do you guys just, uh, what's the word, filter that out as well as also deal with personal insults as you try to defend <laughs> right, yourself? Right. Well, look, that's a very individual decision to make because everybody has to look at the consequences of speaking truthfully. And Michael, I'm just going to ask you to mute yourself for a second because that got loud. Um, everyone has to look at, take stock of the consequences that come from speaking out and speaking what you perceive to be the truth and decide for yourself if it's worth it. For me, it was very easy. When Russiagate happened, I knew it was such a scam and the stakes were so high and I saw the dangers of it becoming normalized and I just felt I had to challenge it. It was just such a obvious scam with so many fallacies and so many dangers. So it wasn't hard for me. And I decided to, I knew there'd be career consequences for me. There'd be jobs that I'd never be able to get ever again that otherwise I previously would have thought about taking. And, but uh, I just decided it was worth it. But the problem is everyone's in a, everyone's in a different position. You have to think about what the impact on your life will be if you take a inconvenient, unpopular, dissenting opinions. So I don't think it's hard to give general advice. In my case now, I, just, I don't, to me, it's not, I don't take anything personally. It's not about me. It's about whether I'm right or I'm wrong. If I have the facts straight or not, that's all that matters. Yeah. I know for me, I've always been sort of dispositionally incapable of withholding my genuine thoughts on issues of consequence and you know so that kind of crossed me off the list of potential hires for PR agencies and that kind of thing and so I tried to fashion some kind of trajectory here in the world of media and slash journalism or whatever uh, that enabled me to to do that and uh, make it sustainable so you know that's always been my philosophy maybe it's like genetic or something in which case I have a lot to blame my parents for in the joint therapy sessions that actually Aaron and I both partake in to so we can commiserate about how um how hellish it is to be criticized online Can I uh, make yeah. the question a little bit more specific so I I don't want to take up more time Go ahead. But... Go ahead. Yeah, so what I was trying to ask is, so the personal insults and stuff, I guess it's very easy to ignore the trolls and uh, uh, people not arguing in good faith, but it gets harder when that comes from people you know well, our friends, our colleagues are somewhere in the middle, you know? So uh, like maybe you naturally have a very thick skin and nothing affects you. I found it a little bit hard. Is it just personal or is there a way to handle this? Because I think this is going to be reoccurring in most debates going forward, given all the problems. It's just a 
something that's going to happen and you can't take these things personally. You can't make any of these conflicts or disputes about yourself. Either you're being factual or you're not. If you're not being factual, then as Michael has done multiple times tonight, <laughs> you, you apologize for it. You account for it you know, and you take responsibility. How people react if you lose friends over it. In my case, you know, no one who I really care about has stopped being my friend. I, I have lost some friends in the Russiagate era, but, I mean, there are bigger things than that, you know. And um, everyone who I really value in my life is still very much with me. And I'm totally fine to be called names and to be insulted by, especially when it comes from people who I don't really pay attention to or respect. It's just par for the course at this point. And it's, a, it's amazing how... The left. I mean, that's that's always been the space that I've been in. I've always been in the left, and I always will be in the left. And it's amazing to see, you know, former friends, former colleagues, parrot things that I just can't believe um, them parroting. And the most profound case for me is Democracy Now!, where I worked for 10 years, and which has been so credulous on so many different issues related to Russiagate, starting with Russiagate itself, but also the dirty war in Syria, also Ukraine, many others. And it's, it's sad for me as a, as a former colleague and as a fan, but it's also, it's just how it is. And you have to just have faith that eventually, hopefully people will recognize where they've been blinded and, and they'll come around to it. But if they don't, that's their problem. It's not mine. I also think the question of kind of social pressures from within your own milieu or what have you, you know, being some of uh, presenting psychological torment or, you know, uh, getting you down when you're being criticized by people you know personally. I think that tends to be um, a consideration most relevant for people who are like congenital networkers meaning they think there's, like, utility in of itself to be constantly going around and, like, slapping backs and um, hobnobbing with people to, like, move up the career ladder or to, you know, enter into institutions that are seen as prestigious or kind of, like, social settings that are really impressive where you're meeting, you know, exciting people. Um, I think if that really is not one of your main priorities in life or if that doesn't animate you then there's a decent chance and i think this probably is applicable to me that you have a social network that is kind of robust and strong um and it's not going to be contingent on some kind of temporary disagreement uh, or some kind of fleeting uh, controversy having to do with what you're saying in the public square so in other words i i think the people who are just sort of more careerist in their inclinations would be more susceptible to the kind of uh, social pressure quandaries that uh, you're, you're laying out there. But also, and I'll just say this, not everybody is insulated from the consequences of not being a conformist. And so if you have to make sacrifices, if you have to keep quiet at times when you want to speak up, when otherwise it could damage your livelihood, the way you earn a living, you're so, I totally get it. I completely get it. And so it, that's why I just think it's a really personal decision to make. And there's, it's very hard to draw general, general rules about it. Yeah, I agree. Okay. So that's Pardee- why, that's why when people ask me for like career advice or something, I just say, <laughs> I mean, I don't know what to tell you, but I'm sorry. I mean, there's, uh, I, 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 
were I to recommend this path to you, it would have within it which uh, a possibly wrong-headed assumption, which is that your kind of psyche is in any way similar to mine. <laughs> and if true, I mean, that could cause you a whole slew of other problems that we don't have time or, mo- or enough money to get into thoroughly. So, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, uh, I, yeah, I guess uh, I don't want to take up more time, but I would ask you to think about this another time about what did you what did you learn or adapt or modify in the last 10 years or so in this sphere? You know, something to comment on later. Thank you. Gotcha. Thanks, Pradeep. Thank you. Okay. Andy, you are up. And remember to unmute yourself by hitting the microphone in the bottom right. Hey, um, hi guys, Aaron, big fan. I've really been enjoying you on uh, Useful Idiots too, so good job there. Um, I had two, uh, like just two kind of comments that I was kind of curious about. The first one is just like what you guys were talking about, like people who are like getting upset at you for being um, like too skeptical. Uh, even people I like, like I, I like that guy Lib, I don't even know who he is, but that guy Lib Crusher or whatever on Twitter, I, I think he was giving you a hard time, Aaron. I mean, I guess the one thing I I found sort of surprising about that is like, I guess I've been following this stuff pretty closely for maybe about twelve years or so. I guess longer, whatever. I I mean, to me, this is like a real watershed moment um, in the decline of the U of U.S. hegemony, and Russia is behaving in a way that is just. I've never seen before. I mean, it's really uh, unprecedented. So I really do think this has taken everybody by surprise. And I think it really is a sign of the, the diminishing power of the U.S. Uh, you know, and I, and I think going forward, like anybody who's prognosticating about Russia and probably China, too, is going to have to change their their view. So I, I think it's kind of surprising that people aren't being more honest about that. I mean, that's my, that was kind of my first thing. Um, and then my, my second question, the thing that's just really been kind of amazing to me is um, just the way a lot of like my liberal friends and people I know seem to be completely um, like just denying that there is any kind of neo-Nazi element in Ukraine and in the Ukrainian military and, you know, essentially being like, oh, that's just Putin, you know, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, I've been following this stuff like for a long time. And I think from reading like Max and the Gray Zone and that guy Moon of Alabama and Consortium News. So I've known about that. And, and, you know, and then John McCain, you know, meeting with Soboda and stuff. And I'm just kind of curious, like your take on, I mean, it seems to kind of tie into Russiagate in that since Putin, you know, said not denazification or whatever, because of like the Russiagate logic now, anything Putin says is exactly untrue. Right. Exactly. Um, and that was a major that was a major aim of Russiagate is basically to stigmatize any talking points, any factual claims that can be used to challenge Cold War dogma, the Cold War agenda, and. Talking about neo-Nazis inside Ukraine, the very real problem there takes is a major part of that. I mean, like, remember that Trump was impeached after he paused some weapon sales to Ukraine. And yeah. the, uh, the, you know, the uh, the impeachment witnesses were basically comparing the fighters in Ukraine to the founding fathers, the Minutemen. Uh, these were supposed to be heroes. And you can't talk in that context. You can't talk about 
a major force inside the Ukrainian military to be literal neo-Nazis. You just can't. I also, I've also kind of wondered, like, I haven't uh, paid too close attention, but, I mean, you know, to me, I don't, I've never seen in mainstream media that the, the Azov Battalion or right sector, I've never really seen a discussion of that. Somebody linked recently on Twitter that Mehdi Hassan talked about it, but in the thing that they... I didn't watch it because I just can't bring myself to watch that guy. It just makes my eyeballs bleed. He's just so horrible. But in that, it was like part of it was that he was debunking Putin's lie in quotes of denazification by yeah, of talking was. about it. You know what I mean? I, so I yeah. think to some of these like liberals who watch MSNBC all the time, the fact that they've never it, it's such a shocking statement to them that it's it's like and, they, and they're like, well, I've never heard of this. So this of has course. to be a lie. You know what I mean? And, and I just was kind of curious if. If, I mean, if you guys have ever seen, I've never seen, I mean, I don't even know if Chris Hayes has ever talked about it. No, you know? no, 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 no. There's been nothing on corporate news. Occasionally you'll get it buried at the bottom of an article. For example, they had to acknowledge it back in 2015 when, when John Conyers, or no, sorry, 2018, when John Conyers got a resolution passed to basically ban U.S. military assistance to the Azov Battalion because up until that point, they were directly receiving U.S. weapons and training. And John Conyers got a resolution passed to ban assistance to them. So at that point, there was a little bit of discussion about it. But that was a while ago, and people have short memories. So, uh, yeah, no. And certainly now it's just off the table. You can't talk about it. So for people who don't know about it, you can't blame them because unless they're reading relatively obscure outlets like the Gray Zone or Moon of Alabama, they're just not going to know about it. And so, you know, and if you dare discuss it, you get accused of spreading uh, Vladimir Putin's talking points when in reality it's a it's such a it's just an established fact. And it's um, one day I'm sure we'll learn even more. I mean, we learned recently that the CIA has been training a insurgency inside Ukraine since 2015. And that came out in Yahoo News. I mentioned it in the last call and I did. And I'll link to it at the bottom of this episode, too. But there's just no way that these forces are not uh, – the, the people who the CIA are training are tied to the far right or at least have elements that are tied to the far right. That's always who the U.S. trains and fosters when it goes into countries to try to uh, train insurgencies. I mean look at Afghanistan. Look at Syria where publicly the U.S. was saying they were arming moderate rebels. But meanwhile in private, Jake Sullivan was writing Hillary Clinton that al-Qaeda is on our side in Syria – and the Defense Intelligence Agency in 2012, August 2012, had that report that got declassified saying that essentially al-Qaeda in Iraq and other Salafi jihadists were the prime engine of the Syrian insurgency. So that's always the case, and it's the main case here inside Ukraine as well. So, yeah, you know, I, I, did a, I did a call in a couple of days ago that people can look at on my channel if they're curious with Ivan Kajanovsky, who's a professor specializing in Ukraine studies in Canada. And he contends and he puts forward what he says and which I tend to agree is an overwhelming body of evidence showing that the original Maidan massacre in 2014, which was really the impetus for the U.S. Uh, kind of taking such an active role in this situation and kind of rallying supposedly global opinion uh, against Russia and against the leader Yanukovych, who was ousted, 
um, he, he claims, uh, meaning this professor, that the perpetrators of the massacre were not the Ukrainian security forces under Yanukovych, but were this faction within the Maidan movement of kind of far-right or fascistic uh, elements who knew that they needed to get the number of casualties of the quote-unquote good guys up to a certain point to galvanize international opinion and facilitate essentially the incumbent president's ouster. Um, so this really gets this whole question of whether there's been adequate emphasis on that that component of the movement or of or how much it's been noted that these elements do exist within Ukraine, that goes back to kind of the, almost the foundational uh, story of this whole saga, at least in terms of U.S. involvement. I, I would also just note something that occurs to me as I'm listening to Aaron and the caller speak, which is that you know, to the extent that people are giving us a hard time, and this is not really a meta point, but it's, it's a point bro- more broadly about the frenzied kind of informational environment now that we're all in the midst of, to the extent that there's skepticism or to the extent that there is any advocacy of in- anti-interventionism or de-escalatory tactics all of that now is getting immediately cast as Putin apologia or some kind of underhanded, sinister, perhaps corruptly motivated desire to defend Putin. And I think that's really noxious because, as mentioned, the risks of further escalation now, whether that encompasses some kind of direct U.S. military confrontation slash NATO confrontation uh, whether we're at a point where a nuclear exchange is a realistic possibility. I mean, those those are serious dangers now, and I think they're more serious today than they probably have been at any time, at least in the past several decades. And so for anybody who's calling for kind of a countervailing view to be considered now in terms of the prudence of these escalatory tactics, which continue unabated as far as I can see. I mean, we have these troop maneuvers deployed by Biden, NATO activating this rapid uh, response force that includes some U.S. troops. Um, EU, as I mentioned, sending fighter jets into Ukraine or claiming that they will. Even now Germany is taking a militaristic stance toward this by deploying missiles, which had been, (laughs) sorry to use a pun, but verboten per the terms of mainstream German political culture now for, you know, for many years. Um, all of this is trending in a very perilous direction, potentially. And so for anybody who, you know, is holding up a stop sign saying, wait, I mean, let's see what else can be done here by way of de-escalatory resolutions, um, to automatically have it be the case that they're going to be tarnished and maybe even have their reputations or career prospects hindered because they're going to be accused of this Putin apologia. You know, it kind of gets back to why I think Aaron and I uh, probably were almost like viscerally repulsed by Russiagate because we knew how, how dangerous that whole, mode of, that whole mode of rhetoric, that whole informational cyclone that Russiagate occasioned could end up being employed in a far more dangerous circumstance, such as a war. And uh, sure enough, we're in the throes of it. Now. Well, th- thanks a lot, guys. Thanks for being on this beat. I really appreciate uh, your work on it. Have a good night. Thank you, Andy. Thank you. And Zach, you are up. And remember that when you come in to unmute yourself by hitting the microphone in the bottom right. Hello. Can you hear me, guys? Yes. 
All right. So I, guess I just wanted to touch on some of the things that you guys mentioned earlier, uh, specifically, I guess, the sort of denazification sentiment that is on uh, the Russian side. I don't know if uh, a lot of the people here saw the interview that Max Blumenthal did with, uh, I believe his name was Texas, but an American that went to go fight in the Donbass region. And during that interview was the first that I learned of the Odessa massacre, where, uh, you know, a bunch of pro-Russian protesters were deliberately led and trapped inside a building and uh, burnt alive. And, and you know, as given the history that Russia has with Nazis, too, you know, they something that I just recently learned, too, in the past year was that Russia had 27 million casualties fighting the Nazis, which is just a mind-blowing number. So I believe that denazification sentiment on Russia, on the Russian side is probably actually very strong. Um, and then it's, uh, another thing I wanted to touch on, too, is just sort of the something that Andy just mentioned, too, is sort of the geopolitical implications of all of this. Um, I just wanted to know what your guys' thoughts on the likelihood of maybe China, Russia, and some of the Belt and Road countries maybe sort of forming maybe a de facto alliance or an actual just official counter-alliance to NATO, specifically just because I think I saw Maduro say something, might have been today or yesterday, coming out uh, basically in favor of the invasion. I don't want to say in favor of the invasion, but sort of, you know, trying to back up sort of Putin's security, legitimate security concerns that Russia has. And I believe China probably has those same security concerns because if somehow worse comes to worse and Russia somehow falls apart into separate nation states, that definitely puts China's national security at risk. Um, and I guess I just wanted to see what some of your guys' thoughts on, on uh, were with that. And then now we hang up now. Thank you very much. Thanks, Zach. Well, look, in terms of why Maduro would back up Russia, it's obvious. Russia is helping to keep Maduro from being overthrown. Ever since the U.S. launched a coup attempt in 2019, where Trump and Pence decided that they can choose Venezuela's new president and that they were going to destroy Venezuela's economy to achieve that goal, Russia has stepped in to help keep Maduro in power and help him withstand the huge economic warfare that Maduro has been under. So it's it's no surprise. And I'm also not surprised that China is siding with Russia, too, because, look, China for many years now has been accused of a genocide by successive U.S. governments, both under Trump and Biden. Uh, the U.S. has used really harsh economic warfare measures to destroy, try to destroy Huawei, the uh, major Chinese company. And so why why wouldn't China take Russia's side in this context when the U.S. has made it obvious that, as Obama said, we want to pivot to Asia to confront China? So it makes perfect sense that we're seeing these geopolitical alignments now and the fact that Russia has taken such a bold move as to use military force to counter what it sees as encroaching U.S. hegemony will only garner support from everybody who is right now under the boot of U.S. hegemony. And I'm not going to make predictions, but I do think that this will spill over to other places too, possibly seeing possibly seeing Russia and Syria becoming more assertive. Because remember that for all this talk about our respect for sovereignty, just today, Condi Rice was on Fox News saying that, you know, and, and Michael, you tweeted this out, this clip. It's unbelievable how the sovereignty of nation states is sacrosanct and we have to respect the U.N. Charter. You know, U.S. right now is occupying one third of Syria <laughs> completely without the invitation of the Syrian government. And that's just become so normalized in the U.S. that that never gets discussed. How often is Syria even in the news, even though you have U.S. forces occupying one third of it with the stated aim, in Trump's words, of stealing Syria's oil. So 
I do think that it's quite quite plausible to believe that there will be a spillover to other places too. And uh, I'm especially watching what happens in Syria. Yeah, someone should really pay me for watching all these Sunday news shows because it's often a struggle. But on occasion, you find gems like Condoleezza Rice on Fox News solemnly affirming her agreement with the statement that it's a war crime to invade a sovereign country when she was national security advisor during the invasion of Iraq. You know, you, you, it was funny because if you watch that clip, and you know, I tweeted it out this afternoon, you, you see a possible kind of glimmer of awareness in her eyes that there might be something um, discordant in her declaring that a war crime is defined by such an act. Um, but it's hard to say with these people. They, seem, they, they often are so consumed with their own ideological myopia that they might not even be aware that there's any inconsistency in what they're avowing. Uh, on the point of uh, U.S. hegemony, and somebody mentioned this, uh, a prior caller mentioned this, you know, I've often come back to this theme in my understanding of U.S. politics, um, which is that the U.S. is rapidly eroding as the world's hegemonic power, right? Um, and I think it's true, as somebody mentioned, that this is a watershed moment in kind of accelerating that process. And so as that power erodes and as American politicians and think tankers and media uh, operators and all the people who kind of form this establishment blob, um, as hegemony declines, they're still going to continue to dig in with their ideological commitments to hegemony and it's going to create chaos, um, meaning they're going to make these maximalist commitments to, you know, unswervingly defending the territorial integrity of Ukraine. And, you know, although it's very much possible that an escalation could happen, as of yet, I mean, the U.S. is not deploying any direct troops on the ground anyway to defend Ukraine. They're just, they just turned Ukraine into a, basically a de facto U.S. military outpost and flooded it with weapons. And, that's an intervention, and that's serious, but it's not really consistent with what the U.S. would do if it took as seriously as it claims its commitment to defending Ukraine, right? So I think you're going to see echoes of that sort of dissonance uh, throughout the world um, as this uh, process of hegemonic decline continues. I always thought, or I always posited that one of the reasons why Trump created such a frenzied backlash within these kind of think tank circles was not really for the reasons that a lot of people suggested um, about, you know, kind of this or that controversy they might have been embroiled in, but because he was viewed as just a radically unacceptable steward of, like, American imperium. (laughs) Um, And, you know, Trump evinced that with, you know, offhanded garbled comments about maybe having some partial skepticism toward the utility of NATO or... You know, maybe thinking that Putin was might have been a killer, but so is the U.S. If you recall, one of his famous lines on a Bill O'Reilly interview uh, during the Super Bowl in 2017, stuff like that. I don't think Trump was really as committed to the dogma of American exceptionalism as other 
presidents, and, and, and that caused like a, a ripple effect within uh, the establishment where they were just so kind of existentially felt so actually threatened by Trump's ascendance. Now, that doesn't really have to, a whole lot to do with Trump's policy posture in office. I mean, his administration, I think, is also partially culpable uh, for the situation we're in now having begun. 20 seconds, Michael. 20 yeah. seconds. Sorry. Having begun, <laughs> thanks for keeping me on track. Um, having begun to, to send weaponry to Ukraine in 2017 is what, what I was going to say. So yeah, but yes. uh, I could I could continue rambling, but I know you. I, could. I, 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 know always, you could. I always rely on Aaron to keep me on course. And we're just doing a terrible job of getting. I know, to all and these that was colors. that was kind of unrealistic in the first place. But it was, it was. It, that's on me. All right, Miles, you are up. Hi, can you guys hear me? Yes. Perfect. Uh, I want to share the sentiment that this is a watershed moment in the decline in the U.S.'s legitimacy as a world hegemon. Um, Just from my analysis, um, it seems like Joe Biden is very afraid of a hot war with Russia. And that's why if, if you claim he had all this intelligence that they were going to invade, then why wasn't Ukraine better prepared for it if you know this, right? If you're the most powerful military in the world, why don't you do that, Joe Biden? It's because he probably didn't know it was going to happen. He was trying to cover his ass. And what I think in reality is the fact is he knows the U.S. can't afford a hot war with Russia because, as you mentioned earlier, Aaron, the whole pivot to Asia strategy is supposed to be what the U.S. State Department is focusing on. Meanwhile, China is winning at, 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 at during this right now because I think they're going to be able to prove the uh, U.S. Uh, is no longer the single economic uh, hegemon with Russia's uh, need to start getting payments uh, in the yuan instead of uh, dollars. I think that's going to happen, and I think uh, that's going to send shockwaves through the uh international system um and i just want to know what you guys think about this in terms of kind of a sh- this point as a shifting point in the world's perception of the u.s power and potentially how it could lead to china becoming more uh becoming strengthened on the geopolitical international stage well possibly because i was humbled a little by getting it wrong that in arguing that i thought it was unlikely that russia would invade i I'm hesitant to make predictions here, but certainly I think everything you're saying is quite plausible. Yeah, you know, same here. I think, you know, it's self-evidently absurd for Western politicians or, you know, politicians within the sphere of influence of the U.S., which is now like some kind of dirty term as though it doesn't exist for the U.S. But when they kind of piously declare that the world is against Russia or the world is united in condemning this aggression from Russia, and then you have the countries with the two largest populations in the world abstaining from the U.S.-sponsored resolution at the U.N. to condemn Russia, India, and China. Uh, I mean, it kind of calls into question just the vi- viability of a lot of these assumptions about like how sustainable U.S. hegemony is, or even the pretensions to it, because it just makes zero sense. Uh, those kind of grandiose sweeping claims anyway in in light of actual events. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's, I agree it's a watershed moment, but I also, you know, uh, think that the, the chaos that this hegemonic decline is probably going to unleash makes for a lot of unpredictability and maybe also makes it not a, good, a great idea to make firm predictions about much. Definitely. I think, but the fact that Saudi Arabia just announced that they're sticking with the OPEC plus agreement in Russia. Yeah. You know, these are the people who are helping carry out a genocide in Yemen with, 
Yeah. They're actually like going to choose the Russians on this side. And the UAE and the UAE as well, I believe at the Security Council, they did not vote against Russia, which you'd think they're so reliant on U.S. weaponry that that would have been an easy call for them. But they didn't. It's a sign that Russia's power, its influence on the global stage is is bigger than they've been given credit for. Definitely. And I think, you know, for me personally, I am a socialist. I do not want the U.S. empire and NATO to survive a day longer. I think, you know, it was purportedly this defensive alliance to stop the Soviet Union. Well, good. Congrats, guys. You defeated the quote unquote big bad evil empire of the Soviet Union. Why do you still have NATO expanding to Estonia? You know, why are you having uh, bases in Poland? That makes no sense. It's clear that it's just a means to an end to solidify U.S. hegemony. And I mean, at this point. As I, I mean, for someone for me, like me, I'm a socialist in America. Like I want to leverage my power here to force our government to stop this like genocidal dictatorship we have over the the world. Quite frankly, and I think like I don't support Putin necessarily invading Ukraine like this. I think he's kind of playing into NATO's hands in essence because it's proof that he's all oh, this crazy Vlad mad dictator. But I also think it's a needed moment to prove to the world that you know NATO is no longer going to like rule the the schoolyard. There are, are some new people in town who can boss uh, certain smaller countries in their geopolitical uh, atmosphere around like they used to uh, before the unipolar moment. But that, that's basically just what my take, and yeah. uh, glad that I, I can share it with uh, some like-minded. Yeah, Miles. Thank you. Thanks for calling in, Lee. You are up. And Lee, if you're there, the microphone button in the bottom right is what you have to hit to unmute yourself. There you go. You got it. Are you there? Yes. I'm sorry. I kept poking it and poking it. I don't know what was wrong. Um, I'll be quick. And this, I I, I need to find a way to put this, you know, because I'm fond of your dad's work too. And, And I'm not being silly when I bring it up. I just really am exasperated with all the news, including all of you who are, you know, who I love, who are, you know, countering the mainstream media. It's all about, and I don't look at TV much, but I've glanced at what's on there. It's, and I grew up in the Marine Corps and I've lived on bases all over the world. So like follow the money, like the previous fellow was just saying, but um, in the midst of all this, it's all about the bad Russians you know, with their evil leader and a polarizing scenario that's about our allies and the people who aren't our allies. Since Hiroshima, I mean, can we talk about how obsolete that is? We're all going to need to be allies or quick deaths, you know, very easy to trigger just by a mistake or a crazy person. So I, my question, quick question, and, it, and I just really think it out. Isn't there somebody who could, and you were talking about it before, who could, you know, it hope, it, it, but somebody with figure, couldn't somebody like that get in these stations, get, you know, get through to Biden, I mean, what's left of his brain, and, and, ex, and basically apologize in some way, not apologize isn't the word, but acknowledge, you know, kind of steal Putin about, you know. Lee, unfortunately, you're cutting out. 
you're you're cutting out, so we're not getting your question. So I'm going to remove you from the queue, and I'm asking you to just re- rejoin the queue, and I'll let you back in. We'll let you jump ahead because we're not hearing you. And are you there? We'll are take you there? Caleb. We'll take Caleb next. Hey guys, can you hear me? Yes. Hi. Hey, so I had. Uh... Well, I originally had two questions, but uh, something else came up in the conversation, so I'll be swapping one of those out. The the first, and Michael, you, you kind of alluded to this, with uh, Germany changing its posture, and recently I saw it seems that uh, Switzerland is at least going to honor some of the, the EU sanctions, even if they don't uh, draft their own. It kind of seems like Russia's running out of people that are that might be able to help broker some kind of exit strategy, some some kind of peace. Um, so I, I I wondered what your guys' thoughts are on that because it looks like at least in Europe, and um, it kind of looks to me like they've run out of people who can who can help them with the Ukraine situation, who who can reasonably said to be neutral enough to uh, right. To actually well, help broker that right. agreement. Well, look, it's one possibility is that Putin is completely snapped and is no longer acting rationally, in which case Russia is really screwed. Or Putin has factored all this in. He's factored in the loss of Germany trying to be as neutral as it can inside of a U.S.-dominated system. And he's factored in that it won't, it won't matter to him. They have enough reserves. They can send their energy over to Asia. It's one or the other, and I don't engage in Putin psychology. He certainly, up to this point, I think, acted pretty rationally, and I know that something like this outcome has been warned about for a long time. So I'm inclined to believe that he is acting rationally and has factored all this in. Has factored in the loss of Germany. Has factored in that the Nord Stream two is off the table. That that's going to be canceled. But uh, we'll see. That's a problem. So much is up for speculation. Yeah, I think a lot, while so many otherwise kind of um, cold and uh, realistic Russia commentators, being the types who don't ordinarily get swept up into any sort of frenzy of speculation, were, were taken off guard by this, is that they always assume some undercurrent of rationality in Putin's thinking. Um, and his behavior, I'm not sure I really glean that at this juncture. I mean, this seems still like a crazy decision to me to be waging this war in the way that he is. Um, And, you know, again, the armchair psychology is the most trite form of punditry, I'll I'll grant that. Uh, But at the same time, I, I do think that this really throws... Um, throws out the window a lot of past assumptions that guided a lot of uh, uh, guided the analysis of people who I otherwise found as trustworthy. So that that's why, uh, yeah. Again, the uh, any <laughs> any uh, anything potentially is in the cards for me, prediction wise. Okay. Yeah, that's fair. The and yeah, I, I think. Well, uh, the two of you, and I think probably a lot of us in the, the line of callers were were wrong on the invasion of Ukraine. So it made sense to be cautious around predictions. Uh, the other 
question that I had kind of related to what some of the previous scholars have talked about, and I wondered if you could elaborate on this or on, on what your thoughts are here around this being sort of a, a watershed for the fall of U.S. hegemony. Um, at least the, the way I had been seeing it, this kind of seems like the reverse. Uh, so I, I definitely see the, the U.S. hegemony falling. But I, it seems like we've opted for the kicking and, ski, uh, kicking and screaming approach. And then we're going to try to claw onto it and hold onto it for as long as possible. And, you know, a, a week or so ago, uh, it seemed like much of Europe was, was rather skeptical or intelligence. And, you know, now I see coverage. And I, I tend to agree that uh, people may start taking this more seriously in the future because of what's happened, uh, whether whether that's right. I mean, that's, uh, that's obviously a different issue, but it seems like, at least in the short term, this has put Europe more in U.S. orbit, which would allow us to, to hold on to our position for a little bit longer. In the long term, I, I, I agree, and I think we're, we're just setting up more and more enemies for ourselves. Um, yeah, well, Carol, listen, thank wondered you. I if you could expound more on your thoughts, sir. Well, look... I uh, I appreciate your commentary here. I want to move on to the next call because there's a, there's many more people and we have not been moving at the pace that I had hoped for. But I do appreciate you calling in and, and thanks for raising this point. And maybe we'll get back to it as more, if more people want to bring it up. So, T-Bolt, you are in. Hi. Do you hear me? Yes, hi. Uh, first of all, for, forgive me for my English and my accent because I, I'm a French living in Hungary, in Budapest. So forgive me for that. You are forgiven. So, <laughs> you are forgiven. Don't worry. So I wanted to give you a perspective of how things are being felt here because, I'm, I mean, I'm in Hungary. Uh, we are really, really, really close to the situation. We have already had something like 60 to 70,000 Ukrainians entering inside the country um, in less than 48 hours. And being personally a, a skeptical of the EU and NATO, uh, we have seen over the past 24 hours a really, really radicalization of, I mean, they are talking about NATO expansion towards Sweden, Finland, now Kosovo. Uh, they are talking about uh, massive militarization. I mean, you have heard about uh, German Chancellor uh, Olaf Scholz, uh, Poland, uh, who is talking about crazy, crazy defense spending. I mean, they have a history uh, with uh, Russia. I mean, because they believe that their former president, uh, Lech Kaczynski, was killed by the Russians in a plane crash. But they are, it's a conspiracy theory. But uh, we, there was uh, a skeptical movement inside the EU, e even with our prime minister, Viktor Orban. But now they are all on board with those kind of things. So I wanted to know your uh, perspective on what is the future of NATO and the European Union, which regards to this. And finally, uh, the sanctions. I mean, they are putting some crazy sanctions. And I'm really concerned about, I mean, you, you have people that are talking about the fact that with those sanctions, Putin is actually not going to stand and there is going to be some kind of coup, uh, a Moscow coup to overthrow Putin because 
the economy will not stand this. So I wanted to know your perspective yeah. also on the future of Putin and Russia. Well, the aim, the aim certainly of these sanctions is to, as it always is with sanctions, which really should be called economic warfare. Sanctions is far too benign. And sanctions has a specific term, which means UN-approved sanctions, like the sanctions in apartheid, uh, in apartheid South Africa. But that's not the case with the U.S., which unilaterally applies these coercive measures, sanctions, economic warfare on governments that it wants to overthrow. So the aim is to create enough pain in the civilian population so that people rise up to overthrow Putin, as the U.S. always tries to do, go across the world, pick a country, Syria... Iran, Venezuela, Cuba, Nicaragua. And now with these really serious sanctions on Russia and, you know, everything is couched in the language over going after the oligarchs in Russia, but that's not who gets hurt by this. It's average people who will get hurt, who will have a harder time using the banking system, whose pensions will get cut. That's always the aim. And uh, whether it works or not, I, I have to defer to people who know Russia far better than I. What I do know is that Putin up until this point Although he's an autocrat, according to polls, has enjoyed massive popular support. And I attribute that to mostly just not so much Russia now, but Russia's history over the last 30 years, where after the Cold War ended, the U.S. helped turn Russia into this wasteland, where with shock therapy, harsh neoliberal reforms, privatizing the economy, handing it over to oligarchs, Russia was decimated. And Putin came in and he did reverse that trend. And he raised the, the life expectancy. He reined in oligarchs to some extent, but also created a whole new, new class of oligarchs too. So it's a, kind of a mixed record. But because of that, he does have high popularity. And so I think it will be very difficult to try to use sanctions to overthrow him, especially when, at least according to the polls that I've read, there is support for the aim of stopping NATO expand to Ukraine. And uh, there is support for helping the Russian speakers of the Donbass. So I just don't, in terms of whether the typical U.S. strategy will work, just like it never works anywhere else while imposing massive civilian suffering, I think we'll see. If, if I were predicting, I would bet on a similar result inside Russia. Yeah, I mean, sanctions, even on their own terms, meaning on the terms that U.S. politicians declare why they need to be implemented, they never seem to succeed. And they only succeed in inflicting punishment on civilian populations. On occasion, you'll have a politician slip up and admit that's the real purpose. But often, and this is really ominous, they seem to be engineered toward at least the goal of effectuating regime change. I mean, that's ultimately the goal in Cuba. It's always the goal in Syria, et cetera, Right. Um, so now it seems that's the, that's the full-on goal in Russia, and that is a really – I mean, we've crossed some kind of Rubicon if that now is that – that's now the policy, or at least the policy objective. I mean, I don't know if you saw Richard Haas, who's the president of the Council on Foreign Relations, so like at the beating heart of the foreign policy establishment in the U.S., floating the possibility today of regime change in Russia. I mean, people are coming on board with this with – a striking kind of uh, rapidity. And I just think it, again, bodes extremely poorly as to the potential of further escalation here beyond what any of us really could have fathomed maybe even 
a week or so ago. But just quickly, Tabella, I'm sort of curious from you because, like, I'm not in Hungary. I mean, uh, Aaron and I are both in the U.S. Um, and Hungary... I'm I'm genetically in Hungary. My father's from Hungary, but aside from that, no, I'm not. Oh, okay, so Aaron yeah. can do like a séance and maybe figure out what's going on in Hungary. But in terms of a firsthand perspective, I'm sort of interested to like what your sense is now of of any shifts in public opinion in light of the. Um, the influx of Ukrainians coming into the country. And it's sort of interesting to me because there's been a, like a, a mini controversy over the past year or so in the U.S. about how, you know, somehow Hungary is this bastion of hope for the American right wing and so on. And, you know, if you, how, how that maybe relates to that alleged dynamic and whatever your other thoughts might be. Um, I mean, I believe uh, Viktor Orban has been under tremendous pressure because I don't know if you know that, but on April the 3rd, I believe, there's a, the general election is uh, up for re-election. And even among a right-wing voter, among conservative voters in Hungary, the, there is a very, very pro-EU stance. I think that if Viktor Orban had refused to go along with the SWIFT sanctions, it's done. He's not going to get more than 50% of the vote. He needs to have 50%. If he doesn't support the sanction, he's not going to have it. If he doesn't support uh, taking as many refugees as, as possible from Ukraine, he's not going to take it. Uh, because right now, uh, with the media, I mean, it's, the, it's different uh, between countries. But, uh, I mean, especially in Germany, Right now, they are really, really, really pushing hard on you need to back Zelensky, you need to back uh, Putin, he's like Hitler, um, and, and, and all this stuff. I mean, this is really crazy. This is, I, I must admit, two weeks ago, I didn't believe in the invasion. Even the day before, I didn't believe it. Now, it's almost worse than the Iraq war propaganda or the Libya war propaganda, uh, it's really, really, really World War III. They, they are talking about those stuff. And and uh, I, I fear about the NATO expansion. They are talking about a rush process uh, for Ukraine inside the European Union because there, there's a, a long process of delays. You need to take five years to, exam, uh, to see the dossier and... I fear that the, the EU bloc is really, really radicalizing and Putin may have provoked the contrary that he wanted at the, uh, at the start of the invasion. I, I think that is really, really uniting countries. The, the anti-EU voice are, are, are completely disappeared right now. So that's... that's... Hmm. Hmm. Well, people, thank you uh, for calling in and sharing your take. It's great to get an analysis from someone who's actually there. I mean, and, and there's such limitations to being over here in the belly of the beast. So thank you for, for calling and staying up late in Hungary to uh, talk to us. We're going to go to the next caller. Hi. Hi there. Uh, yeah, this is Eric. I'm from Sweden. Um, I'm, uh, I'm really sad and scared right now and um frustrated at what's happening and um but uh yeah if i had um, a question it would be do you think there's a 
a real split within the U.S. establishment, um, where there there is uh, there seems to be um, some kind of Russia dovish side to the to the American right. Uh, is that real, or is that just some kind of right wing? Uh, false populism or what do you think yeah no there is no split inside the establishment none there's absolutely none remember trump who's the face supposedly of the putin friendly right that he was the one who reversed the obama policy of not sending javelin missiles and other weaponry to ukraine because trump came in and he was called a russian puppet and so to help try to prove his Cold War bona fides and to prove he's not a Russian puppet, I think that helped influence his decision to send even more weapons to Ukraine than were already being sent. And you have Tucker Carlson, basically, who's on the right, who's a very influential figure media-wise, but he's not the Republican establishment. And you look at uh, the Republicans in Congress, and there's been a couple, like Josh Hawley, who said he, he opposes NATO expansion for Ukraine, but he's an exception. The, if you look at the Republicans on Fox News, they're they're just as bellicose, if not worse, than the Democrats. There was one recently who talked about using nuclear weapons, essentially, against Russia. The senator from Mississippi, uh, Vicker, I think his name is. It's just insane. Wicker, Roger Wicker. Wicker, sorry, yeah, Wicker. So this this notion, basically, the notion that there's a split into the Republican Party is just a it's just propaganda from the Democrats to make it make it look as if they're standing up to the pro-Russia party of the Republicans. But it's it, it's purely just cheap partisan hackery because really policy-wise, they're totally in lockstep. Yeah, I mean, I was waiting for any indication at all really among elected officials in the Republican Party that uh, for evidence of this purported split in the lead-up to the invasion, right? And, and what would that evidence be? Well, it would be some kind of policy proposal to restrict U.S. engagement in the conflict, right? Or to not send perhaps additional shipments of weapons flooding into Ukraine or anything that actually indicated that they were serious about this position where, you know, defending Ukraine was not in the U.S. national interest. And although you see these kind of half-formed indications in certain quarters of uh, skepticism toward the whole notion of U.S. intervention in Ukraine. It doesn't manifest virtually at all in the Republican elected officials. And for the most part, they've been screaming that Biden is showing weakness or that he's an appeaser, meaning that they want even more bellicose measures taken. Um, so, and that was pre-invasion, right? I mean, now that the invasion is underway and we have this onslaught of propaganda, I mean, some, I'm sure some of it is accurate, but much of it isn't, that is kind of relaying these tales of heart-rending heroism on the part of Ukrainians and how they need Western support to defend their country. And again, I'm not downplaying the danger or the even bravery that some Ukrainians are surely displaying. But, I mean, that whole dynamic now is going to make it so that there's even less space for this quote-unquote splinter or, or divide within the Republican Party definitely to make itself known. Um, but uh, I'm actually curious briefly for you because you're another, this is another kind of international correspondent that we have here, Aaron. 
Um, what is your sense of like public opinion now in Sweden? I mean, we're seeing reports that you know there's going to be all this new um, movement for these new countries, including Sweden, apparently to join NATO. I mean, do you think that's a realistic thing, or what is your what is your kind well, of preliminary assessment? Uh, I I can't watch the news because it's just thick of the same the same propaganda that's received um, from overseas. But um, yeah, what's happening is basically that the mask is coming off. That uh, we 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 were always technically incorporated into into NATO in terms of material and uh, exercising together. Um, but now it's like yeah, we're just going to send. Um, anti-tank munitions straight up to, to Ukraine. So no pretense anymore of neutrality or non, non-alliance policy. Yeah. So. As was Ukraine, by the way. I mean, this, this really sticks in my craw when we talk about NATO, uh, Ukraine joining NATO. I mean, yeah, there are formal steps that have not been taken that would make possible the accession of Ukraine formally into NATO. But, I mean... Anybody can Google these constant military exercises that the U.S. carries out in conjunction with NATO in Ukrainian territory and to, to, to supposedly enhance the interoperability between the Ukrainian military and NATO. So it's already – NATO already has a presence in Ukraine. It's not like it's some theor- theoretical thing that could happen down the line for, the, for Ukraine to have any involvement whatsoever with NATO – um, it's already underway, and you know, that seems there seems to be a certain obliviousness about that even now. Yeah, maybe maybe that's what Putin achieved. He he uh, he exposed hidden structures. Uh, All right. Well, look, we're going to move to the next caller. Thank you for calling in from Sweden and staying right, up so thanks. late. I really appreciate it. Thank you. And you know, stay. Uh, Stay safe, you know, and just know that there are people around the world who feel the same as you, you know, so you're not alone and feeling scared. Thanks, man. Appreciate it. Simran, you are in the call. Hello. Can you hear me? Yes. Hi. Oh, hey. Cool. Yeah, I'm calling from the UK. Um, Yeah. uh, Yeah. Thank you both so much for your reporting and doing these call-ins. Like, it's nice to get, like, a clearer idea of what's going on. Um, I've been following... um, I don't know, like, into, like, international affairs, so, like, more intensely over, like, the past year, I've gotten interested in, like, I've gotten interested in, like, anti-imperialism, all that kind of stuff. I think the thing that um, has been creeping me out about this recently is that um, the days leading up to this, I, I didn't see anyone really talking about it, um, and but then maybe uh, a day, you know, after everything happened the next day on social media, uh, the sort of the war PR machine had really sort of um, taken uh, had sort of taken a hold of the gist of social media in the way I hadn't seen before. It's sort of, um, I see a lot of like my friends, you know, like other young, like ostensibly progressive people, really like um, having a a two D a historic view of like of the of the issue and like how you know Russia bad, uh, you know Ukraine uh, Ukraine good, nothing about America, nothing about. Uh, NATO, nothing about Nord Stream, nothing about economics, and uh, any you know in the, in England, Russia's just been painted as like a you know like a bad place where there's you know people are mean to gay people, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So you know that fills the imaginary as well. So it all sort of like fits together in this like really weird way. Um, 
but yeah, I just wanted to I wanted to mention that because it's it's for someone who's like interested in anti imperialism and stuff to just like wake up one day and see all this. It's like it was just like very strange, uh, very strange thing to like look at and see. Um, but yeah, the other, the thing I wanted to bring up was is this is this all been escalated because we're coming closer to a, a multipolar moment? You know, is is this something that? Um, or am I like taking like a bit of conspiratorial view? Is like uh, well, no, no. The you know the people who speak often about the need for a multipolar world, um, analysts like um, Pepe Escobar, right? Yeah. Um, they, I think they would certainly say that. It's, I mean, that's not my wheelhouse. I don't, I don't uh, focus on that as much. So it's it's hard for me to weigh in that way, but. Certainly, yeah, there is a sense that especially with the rise of China, that the U.S. grip of the world is slipping and that this is one of those moments that, as people have talked about tonight, many, a few people have, have talked about this, this is one of those moments where there's a crisis being uh, escalated or manufactured to try to avert that. And Russia has shown that obviously in a very bold way that it's not going to back down. It's just it's just hard for me to make predictions about what happens from here because it, to me it's totally within the realm of possibility that all of this backfires spectacularly on Putin and that his people suffer the consequence. You know, yeah. I don't want to I, I don't want to think that this is the dawn of a new era where U.S. hegemony is dead. It's it's just you know the world's so uncertain. It's just I, I find it difficult to make pronouncements like that with such confidence. I also I think there's a paradoxical effect happening here where on the one hand clearly this is an instance of u.s hegemony declining at least to some extent as evidenced if only by china and india which i think some people were taken off guard by india also abstaining from any condemnation of russia but that seems to me rather significant um so you know what the magnitude of this decline is at this juncture it's hard to quantify it with any precision, but I think it clearly is happening. And yet, the paradoxical part is that now the U.S. federal government, the intelligence services, the kind of think tank apparatus, all these players have a grist to claim vindication, right? So they could claim that their image has now been restored. They've been rehabilitated after a lot of bipartisan, you know, at least there's been a lot of dissension about the role of the U.S. intelligence agencies these past couple of years, may, may, uh, including a lot of skepticism that's emerged on the right around Russiagate um, and the role that these uh, intelligence services had in kind of really trying to carry out what I think was a soft coup of sorts uh, against Trump, given his unacceptability in their minds as a steward of the American kind of hegemonic project. Um, and I think that's really just a recipe for even more chaos. Again, it goes back to that the, the incongruity that I'm trying to flesh out here, which is that as you have American hegemony declining, you nonetheless have a lot of American officials in positions of influence and power clinging ever more virulently to their hegemonic position. And I think that's uh, just not going to be sustainable. And so, yeah, I mean, all bets are off. And I'll say this too. Yes, the neocons got a bit, got a boost with uh, Russia actually invading after their dire warnings proved to be correct. But if you look at Biden's approval ratings, 
and it's just right now, I think today they hit their record low. And it's just obvious that a plurality of Americans don't care about Ukraine, don't care about the sanctity of the cause of keeping the possibility of NATO membership for Ukraine on the table. They're just not what they want to pay higher gas prices and risk a war over. You know, they just they're just not their top priority. So I do think that higher will, the cost of freedom, though, is higher the, gas prices. As uh, as Yamish put it, uh, Yamish Alcindor put it recently on Meet the Press. Yes. Uh, the cost of freedom. Yeah, I just don't. So, yes, intellectually in the media class, their their stock is a bit up. But with the public, I just don't think it's resonating because, again, it's the same thing with Trump's impeachment, his first impeachment when they impeached him over or after pausing some weapon sales to Ukraine. And Adam Schiff was saying that we were do, we were arming Ukraine to fight Russia over there. Um, Trump ended that impeachment with the highest poll ratings of his presidency because people just didn't it didn't resonate. It's just people don't care about Ukraine. And by the way, Schiff's clip when he made that statement, when he said that the U.S. aids Ukraine so that they fight Russia over there and we don't have to fight them here. Well, to me, that that statement explains this moment perfectly. If you don't want Russia to fight Ukraine over there, don't use Ukraine to fight Russia from here. It's, it just seems very obvious. And um, it's just amazing how when, Trump, when, when Schiff made that statement, it was it was hailed as like his whole quest to ensure continued U.S. weapons to Ukraine was treated as this noble quest to save democracy. Well, look at the consequence now. It basically started a war. That's that's the ultimate consequence. Yeah. And as this very Colin episode has been underway, I was attacked by Eric Swalwell, everyone's favorite <laughs> congressman, a brilliant man. America's dumbest congressman. Let's, Probably let's America's. I would not even yeah. dumbest, like dopiest. Yes, yes, um, yes. You know, who's screaming that if Trump were president, he'd be sending weapons to Russia. And I saw that, I'm like, and I said to myself, gee, I sure thought that in 2017, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Trump started sending the weapons to Ukraine. And, 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 you know, people genuinely believe that narrative that he's putting out there, that, you know, Trump is culpable for this, not as having escalated tensions with Russia or setting the stage for a breakdown in diplomatic relations with Russia, but because he was too solicitous of Putin and was engaged in a conspiracy with him. Um, and, you know, that, that mindset persists now. And I, I just, it's impossible to stamp out. Um, and, you know, to the point that he's even willing to get into a Twitter fight with me in defending his ridiculously unsupportable position. Well, uh, I look forward to an update. If he, if he claps back at you, Michael, I hope you'll update us on what, uh, that. what he says next. Because that's, a, that's an epic feud. He did clap back. He's, okay. Yeah. All right. Uh, we have to rush because we have limited time and a lot more callers we have not gotten to. And I'm sorry we're not going to be able to get to everybody today. So... I have failed in that task, and I apologize. But I will be back on Colin tomorrow, that's Monday, at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, right after we finish the Useful Idiots Monday morning show where we look at the clips from the Sunday news shows. And, of course, it's going to be all Ukraine tomorrow. So if you're around tomorrow morning at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, you can come back to Colin, and we can take your questions there. I'll be on with Katie Helper and Nima. And Michael, are you planning any call-ins soon? Do you want to announce them now? 
Uh, I don't have any scheduled yet, but uh, if people want to follow my my show, I'll, I'll have one uh, this week in in due course. Okay, Nima. Oh, hi guys, can you hear me? Yes. Well, first of all, I, I live in Sweden, just like the other caller, and um, I just wanted to basically raise a few issues about the propaganda apparatus, the likes of which I have never seen. I mean, this is my first rodeo. I'm 41 years old in the summer. I've seen imperialist Western wars pretty much my entire life, the Soviet, after the, especially after the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991. Um, but I have never, ever seen anything like this. The amount and the sheer tidal wave of lies from the ghost of Kiev to all the other bullshit that we've seen, and not to mention, as a former caller from Sweden said, the very idea, uh, you know, you can't, Swedish TV and, you know, media is absolutely unwatchable. I have IPTV, so I, I watch pretty much news coverage from all the world. It is worse than anything you have in the United States right now. Um, and my and now I find that hard to believe, Nemo. Oh, but, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm willing to I'm willing me. to entertain that. No, no, <laughs> believe uh, strange me. It is unbelievable. No, believe me. I I watch MSNBC, Fox News, CBS, and compared to TV4 on Sweden, those are that's that's you know they're neutral. But, Shocking. Um, regardless, uh, regardless, um, the what the EU has now done. I think we've crossed a Rubicon, and this is what I wanted to ask you both about. The fact that they have unceremoniously pretty much broken their own charter and banned RT in all of the EU. That's right, yeah. Um, where do we go from here? Because this is no longer... I mean, this is something that started a little bit. Twitter and Facebook started with Alex Jones and then a sitting actual US president. And since then, we've escalated into the point where I mean, we don't even have freedom of speech anymore on social media. Um, where do you, I mean, the fact that they literally, with a stroke of a pen, just took away RT from all of the EU. I mean, did we cross a Rubicon here? And where do we go from here? It's <laughs> pretty amazing. It's pretty amazing. Sorry, uh, sorry, yeah, yeah I, I have a, a quick sort of perversely amusing point to make about that, which is that, you know, obviously the UK is no longer in the EU, yeah. right? And that was declared to be the dawn of reaction in the UK. And uh, whereas the EU would remain like a bastion of liberalism or something, that was like the oversimplified characterization of the Brexit referendum, mm. right? And although Keir Starmer, the leader of the Labour Party, in the UK floated the possibility of the UK banning RT this past week. They haven't actually gone through with it yet. The EU has taken that action now, even before the UK has. And I, I would have thought it would be a, a other way around, which is why, again, that's another sort of just unexamined assumption that uh, seems to have fallen by the wayside. And I don't even know what it means in practice for RT to be banned in the UK. What, I mean, are they going to deport RT correspondents from France or something? I mean, it, it's, what's the practical implementation of that? I mean, it's just very. No, I, I, wanted, I wanted to hear, I mean, from you also, Aaron, what do you think? I mean, now, did we cross a Rubicon with this? Because I feel that exactly like that other caller said, uh, I think in, in Hungary, um, the EU's reaction has been, went from 
reserved to rabid in 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 a matter of days and this notion i mean it's not just you know the economy and all that but the very idea to throw out and ban a news organization under the guise of misinformation which we've seen for the past 2-3 years yeah. is pretty much anything you don't agree with with the neoliberal consensus on yes yes um i mean this is something else though from in my opinion would you agree and did we cross rubicon here well I can't make such a declarative statement because I have no idea what will happen. It's possible tensions ease and these decisions get reversed, but it's certainly incredibly scary how quickly the you know European Union supposedly committed to democratic values just completely throws free speech out the window. And it's something that, you know, as was, was mentioned, has been talked about in Britain for a long time. Keir Starmer has been talking about banning RT. And sort of the, 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 the playbook was laid down with Russiagate, where basically mm. anything outside of the consensus of the you know, neocon, neoliberal establishment is deemed to be Russian disinformation. Oh, yeah. and, and, we, and we have to protect ourselves from it. That's why we have all these different you know, fake groups monitoring Russian disinformation where Ann Applebaum happens to chair all of them. <laughs> and it's um, yeah. So in terms of have we crossed the Rubicon? Quite possibly. We'll, we'll have to see. But it's insane. Well, well, Jen Stoltenberg, the Secretary General of NATO, the reason he gave for why this rapid response force was activated for the first time is because he said that he believes that Putin will not be stopping at Ukraine, meaning hmm. they're they're shoring up this defense for Poland, right or. The Baltics, I don't know, but you know, Poland is what Stoltenberg cited as what is next in the crosshairs, and I, I have no idea if that's true. I'm, I, I, I've, you know, tried to now remain more humble than I would otherwise be about what's to unfold after this. But you know, it seems like that they're entering into a war posture, and well, uh, the implications exactly for what... that are very, very dire. That's exactly what I'm. My my read of the situation is as well that. I don't, as much as, you know, Joe Biden or whoever, you know, is his caretaker on that day tells him to say something into the teleprompter, um, regardless of that, the U.S. is not as aggressive as NATO and the EU has been, at least in terms of the statements they've made. And that changed overnight. Germany went from it's technically difficult to throw them off swift to we're ramping up our military budget to 2% of our BN, of our gross national product. I mean, what could possibly go wrong when Germany militarizes and feels threatened by Russia and Russia's militarizing? Mm. What could possibly go wrong there? I mean, it's it's absolutely absurd. What And, and what the Swedish caller said about NATO, look, Sweden um, basically has, this debate is 70 years old in this country about NATO, and it kind of swings both ways, and they won't be able to, and they've tried to bully crowbar Sweden into NATO, but it's not going to work without a referendum because the Swedish people just won't have it. It's a generational debate. But as as far as Finland goes, I know, for example, that they now have to debate it in the Finnish parliament because there is a law in Finland that if you have 50,000 online signatures to, de- to have something debated in parliament, it has to be debated, meaning 50,000 people in Finland signed on to have the possibility of joining NATO discussed in the Finnish parliament. 
Um, and then now it must be. So we'll have to wait and see how that goes. It's but so, it is that's so that is so scary, especially when you consider Finland's been so prosperous. Things yeah. have worked out. I mean, relatively, things have worked out great for Finland yeah. being neutral. And, well, exactly. It's and, I, it's crazy. Yeah. All right. Uh, we have to wrap soon, so I have to get to the next caller. Thank you, Nina, Thanks. for calling. I Thanks, really guys. appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Steph, Stefan, you're up. And we're going to wrap in 10 minutes, everybody. So, unfortunately, we're not going to get to everyone, and I apologize, but I hope you will call back the next time we do this. Good evening. Good evening. How are you? We've <laughs> uh, been using the term cross the Rubicon quite a bit, and I think it's worth remembering what happens on the other side of the Rubicon. And it doesn't look pretty. Um, but that's um, by and by. I just wanted to call and I was going to ask a rhetorical question. And who remembers the time man of the year from 1956? And uh, nobody will. There's the Hungarian freedom fighter. And uh, the very next year, the time man of the year ended up being um, Nikita Khrushchev. So that just gives us a rough idea of how well our voice of American media works but, right so, um, so uh so for people who couldn't hear that because your sounds a little bit muffled you're saying that in 1956 so. the time man of the year was a hungarian freedom fighter and the following yeah. year it was khrushchev the premier of the soviet union yeah yeah yeah, yeah. um but that was uh, just a little an aside what i've been watching um from australia is um what looks like a sleepwalking escalation First, we're, you know, um, taking our tea off air, then we're not having talks, then we're just thinking about talks, then Germany is sending missiles, and just feels like no Archduke has been assassinated, but it feels like we're sleepwalking in escalation. Mm. Where, where are you and from, Stephanie? Um, uh, Australia. I, I just, I appreciate our international. Uh callers tonight so it's yeah. trying to keep a it's been great yeah. it's been great getting we've got we've spanned multiple continents and multiple countries and it's great to get the insight honestly into things that michael and i have no awareness of because we're stuck in uh <laughs> new york city in uh, new jersey in michael's case and we're we're in the belly of the beast so they're just there's we're getting access to perspectives that we just otherwise won't get so this has been great good um yeah we get look we should have a vote uh, for president in Australia because we really are the 51st state. Whatever mm. you do, we're three weeks behind you. Yeah. <laughs> That's about it. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, the, the idea of, you know, uh, this gentle escalation and, and how far is it going to go? The best case scenario is that Putin's man of the year next year and everybody forgets about the Ukrainian <laughs> freedom fighter. Yeah. And the worst case scenario is crossing the Rubicon. No. Yes. Know. Well, I think yeah, the latter. Yeah, I think yeah. the latter, unfortunately, is a lot more likely. I hate to say. Yeah, yeah. So um, let's, let's let's say our goodbyes. That's all I have yeah. wanted to say. Well, Stefan, thank you for calling in. Thank you, Nicholas. Thank you. All right. Hey, everyone. Hi, uh, Michael. We've talked before. You were actually a guest on my show a couple of years back. Uh, fully automated. Uh, we met at the DSA convention in Chicago uh, some time back. So. Uh, Aaron, this is my first time ever speaking to you, and it's a pleasure. I wanted to address my question to the discourse around uh, Ukrainians having a, in scare quotes, democratic right to join NATO. Um, 
it's just strange to me because you know like the the implication seems to be that nato is some kind of social club or even like something simple like uh you know a golf club and that the refusing uh ukrainian access to nato is like basically a form of bigotry you know i've seen this kind of discourse floating around quite a bit and um i would just add i suppose you know leaving our own feelings of nato aside you know obviously it's a it's a institution with a, a long history but even if just sort of taking it on good faith terms as a military alliance it is a military alliance and i think it's just this naivety um uh, of so many commentators uh, online and in mainstream media to this fact that um you know the united states takes its right to dominate the entire western hemisphere pretty much for granted uh does whatever it wants, you know, under the name of the Monroe Doctrine. But, uh, you know, while that can be unquestioned and considered normal, um, and the United States' actions have all been sort of considered, in scare quotes, measured responses to fairly minor pro-left rev revolutions uh, thousands of miles to the south of the U.S. border, you know, NATO is not just a minor revolutionary force, it's a full-on military alliance and it's asking to expand right up to the russian border you know why why this raises an eyebrow i do not why why russia's objections to this raise an eyebrow or causes to blink seems very very strange i was just wondering if you would care to comment on that well ukraine doesn't have a quote democratic right to join nato i mean this idea that is there's this kind of a free floating right for anybody to join NATO has been invented relatively recently. It's not like the Ukrainian parliament can just pass a resolution and boom, they've joined NATO. The 30 something NATO member states, is it 30? I mean, it's a lot now. I mean, they have a, like a judicatory process amongst themselves to determine whether they're going to permit any country to join NATO. So this idea that it was like some abridgment of Ukraine's sovereignty or like democratic will to say that they won't be joining NATO. I mean, that's like a, some fallacy that's just been invented relatively recently to preclude what would have been the necessary diplomatic engagement with Russia to potentially avert this whole scenario. I mean, maybe Putin was planning on it all along and have, has become genuinely maniacal. It's possible. But it's also possible that a uh, security guarantee could have been offered along the lines of what Russia was demanding, and nothing would have changed from the status quo except the U.S. and other NATO member states would have had to give up on this fiction that any country could just join at will. I mean, it's just not true. Yeah, and uh, Michael, as you pointed out today on Twitter, in the late 1990s when Bill Clinton was presiding over this NATO expansion, and among his biggest cheerleaders were Joe Biden in the Senate and also the, the U.S. weapons industry. People like Robert McNamara, Bill Bradley, Gary Hart, also George Keenan, one of the you know most eminent U.S. diplomats ever, were warning what a disaster this would be and how it would basically uh, put the U.S. on a path to very, very dangerous confrontation with Russia. And as you pointed out, now this is some kind of fringe, traitorous position. If you dare question Ukraine's solemn right to join NATO, it speaks to exactly, as the, as the caller says, how insane things have gotten. 
Yeah, it was an incredibly mainstream position. I mean, Robert McNamara, you know, committed a lot of sins in his life, but as he entered his later years, he did the most of any official I'm aware of to actually atone for the Vietnam War. It doesn't absolve him of his culpability, obviously, but kind of devoted his career to, you know, in his later life to, to making amends for that to the extent possible. And this is one eh, of his I, you know, I, final acts. I, I don't agree um, with that. I, I don't I think if you watch Fog of War, not that we should get bogged down into a Robert McNamara discussion. If you watch Fog of War, he's still kind of, he's still not acknowledging what he really did. And, uh, okay, maybe maybe so. I mean, I didn't. I haven't. It's been anyway, a while whatever. since I've seen that. But that but was just. Can, like, yeah. But the, the point is, this yeah. guy was at the center of the American establishment, right? Yes. He's, he's issuing a public letter to Bill Clinton in 1997, telling him that NATO expansion was going to be a policy mistake of historic proportions. Yes. And yes. you know, and also on that letter, I mean, you have Sam Nunn, who is this, you know, um, senator, uh, Dem- you know, conservative Democratic senator from uh, Oklahoma. You have uh, people who served in the George H.W. Bush administration and the Reagan administration. I mean, these are not fringe radicals whatsoever. I mean, they're the most no. um, um, at the very center of the American uh, American establishment, warning against this. And now, you know, now we're told it's like a it's you, you love Putin and you're an outright traitor if you even bring it up. I mean, it just shows you how stuff changes so radically. Yes, Nicholas, thank you for the call. We're gonna thank you. yes, yeah, we're gonna have to move on because we. We're over time, and I want to get to at least two more callers. So thank you, Nicholas. Thank you. Eddie, you're up. Hey, Aaron. Can you hear me? Yes. Um, I just wanted to say thank you guys both for your work, and thank you for taking my call. Um, I'll make this pretty quick. Um, I saw recently that you know Belarus is basically going to join Russia in Ukraine, and I saw that they suspended their like non-nuclear status. Uh, which, like, would pave way for nukes to, like, you know, be in the country. So I was just wondering, like, your guys' thoughts on that and, like, you know, how that could escalate things from here. Well, I've seen reports that there have been rockets fired from Belarus into Ukraine already. Um, it's hard to, te- you know, hard to verify that with 100% certainty. But yeah, I mean, you know, I think Belarus is going to be, which is already in, if I understand it correctly, like a federation with Russia to begin with. And you know, now it's just going to be treated as a total proxy state of Russia, which maybe it was. But yeah, things don't look good on that front. Okay, Chris, thank you. Or Eddie, thank you. Chris, you are up. Hello. Hi. Can you hear me? Yes. Hey, um, big fan of both of y'all. Um, glad I got I uh, I uh, been a Russian file for since I was like a preteen, and then, uh, Chris, we can barely hear you, so you have to speak okay. directly into the phone. Let me try something different. Hang on. Yeah. Hello. Yeah, hi. Hang on, hang on. Give me one second. Hello. We're here. Okay, sorry. Um, so I uh, I'm from United States, um, and. Uh, during the pandemic, I uh, wanted to get out of the United States and kind of get away from all the crazy COVID hysteria. So I went to Ukraine, where nobody gives a fuck. And I lived in Kiev uh, half of last year, and I got back here in October. And um, so it's, you know, I've been interested in um, kind of that area of the world for a while. And, you know, I, I felt like I had a really good feeling for what was going on leading up to 
you know, this craziness. And I definitely thought it was kind of a tit for tat and that the Pentagon and um, the Kremlin had kind of war gamed this out where basically Putin was going to invade the Donbass and take it for Russia. And then the Pentagon and the United States and the rest of the world was going to hit him with sanctions, but it was going to be too heavy. And in, you know, in so doing, uh, Putin was just going to basically demonstrate like he can demonstrate power. He can project power locally and kind of make the United States look weak and also make them look stupid with this whole narrative that he was going to do a complete invasion. And so I was, you know, just like probably most people here, not thinking that the invasion, the way U.S. intelligence was saying it was going to happen, I was absolutely shocked. So as soon as that happened, I kind of just like dove into what was going on, trying to figure out, you know, how did I get this so wrong? Because I, you know, I have friends in Ukraine and, you know, here in the United States, I've been telling basically with confidence, like I knew it was going to happen. Um, I, I kind of like, I felt like I understood Putin pretty well. I've always kind of respected him as, and Lavrov in their ability to kind of navigate foreign policy in a very intelligent way with like a, you know, a really bad set of cards. They always seem to like pull shit off in the face of, you know, obvious encroachment. And I was really looking forward to this moment where I thought that, you know, it would be a multipolar moment. And he didn't have to take the whole country. He would He would just take the Donbass. Can you still hear me? Yeah. And you have 30 and, um, seconds. Okay. And um, I was absolutely shocked that he moved on the whole country. And um, I, I have um, reports, like, uh, from a Russian in the Kremlin who retired like three years ago, predicting exactly what happened. I'm going to DM it to both of y'all. Um, but he predicts this entire ordeal and, and says that Putin doesn't have a good understanding of his military because all of his leaders lie to him. Mm. And there's a bunch of corruption within the military. And he's completely caught off guard. He, he predicted he would be caught off guard. He was trying to do a rapid 48-hour taking of Kiev and totally failed. And now that he's failed, I'm really worried that he doesn't have a backup plan. Like, mm. this was his moment. If he would have taken Kiev swiftly, put in kind of a puppet government, forced uh, Ukraine's hand and kind of built like a, a resolution that kind of favored Russia and was friendly to Russia, it would have been a brilliant move. It would have been a massive I got you. Move. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Look, but I, I'm really worried that he, I, I got he, it. he screwed up. I got it. And, I, I think that's quite a plausible scenario. And I've seen people like, for example, Michael Kaufman, who was mentioned before, saying a similar thing that – the Russian military strategy has been all over the place. I just, for me, not being a military guy, I don't have the independent judgment to to weigh in on that question. But I, it certainly, right. I think, uh, I've a real I'll, possibility. I'll call in later. But one of the things I did because I was so flummoxed about everything that was going on, I hopped into the OSIT kind of thing, and I've been kind of like autistically tuned into it for like the past three days. It's a really interesting situation and yeah. there's like it, there's definitely a story there if you want to write about it and there's some interesting stuff there that's all i'm going to say like, okay well <laughs> like, like i yeah that Maybe definitely I'll, I'll definitely Chris send, yeah or or send me a message here on call out okay I'll get yeah it. and thanks for calling in i appreciate it yeah i also take right. a look at whatever people right. send me you know I, I i tend i tend to agree that again this is just amateur 
analysis from my armchair, to use the cliche, but it's just hard to see how Putin, having made such maximalist, set forth such maximalist military objectives at this juncture, could cease the operation without complete fulfillment of them, or at least attempting to secure complete fulfillment of them. And uh, as far as I know, um, the Russian military is still only deployed like a faction, a fraction of its uh, available forces. That is true. So it so it far, seems, yeah. you know, reasonably likely that, you know, the fighting and the destruction could intensify beyond what we've seen yet. Absolutely. That's a very real prospect. We're going to take two more callers and then wrap it up. Greg, you're up. Greg, if you're there, you have to hit the microphone button in the bottom right. And no. Okay. Next caller is the Reverend. Hi. There you are. Hi. Hi. Sorry. Thank you. Aaron, I know you're at the end of the show. So I'll just say the work you do and your colleagues, Katie and Brianna, you are an oasis of information and insight in a media desert of misinformation and mediocrity. That's all I want to say. I know it's the end of the show. Thank you. <laughs> I appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate that. Okay, Brian. Brian, if you're there, you have to hit the microphone button in the bottom right. And if not, oh, we'll get to Lee. Lee, I apologize. I forgot to bring you back in. Please forgive me. So let's bring you in right now. Hello? Hi. Hi. Is there there any organization or any source that could you know maybe maybe they're in the pockets of some of our dc politicians where we could reframe this whole situation because this is a, a psychological dilemma where you know i just want to get talk to putin and listen to him and steel man him and talk about you know it's, i mean how we need to have an a NATO that includes everyone, you know, and, and that when he asked to join NATO before there should have been a negotiation for how to yeah. acknowledge that that was a baby step in the right direction. Yeah. Look, the, the authority on this is the late professor Stephen F. Cohen, professor yeah. of Russian studies at Princeton and NYU, you know, changed the field of, of Russian studies in the U S and what he said was that there was more, there was more space during the cold war to dissent on U.S. policy towards the Soviet Union than there has been in this yeah. era to dissent when it comes to the U.S. policy towards Russia. That is a just, it's unbelievable when you think of what that means. Yeah. You know, this was back. Yes. The, uh, this is the Cold War and, you know, with, with all that came with it. So, uh, no, I, the answer is no. The, and uh, so it's really up to us who are on the fringes to just keep doing what we're doing and hoping that eventually – you know, space opens up. But I happen to have right Putin's uh, cell phone number, so I can forward <laughs> that to you if you'd like. <laughs> I tell you, it need, I think it needs to be something like that, where it's just a, you know, kind of a, back, just a really um, innovative sort of back, you know, back room situation yeah. to allow him to save face. I mean, yeah. he had some reasonable concerns, for God's sake, and none of that's talked about on. MSNBC or Fox or any of the mainstream media. He's also made himself unusually available is... to American media in the past. Like there's a huge interview, uh, a, a, an hour and a half long interview that he did in June of 2021 with NBC News.
mm-hmm. where you know he a lot of these concerns that now he claims have driven him to invade Ukraine were aired, and it just seems like there were so many missed opportunities for a kind of actual dialogue that maybe yes, could refer to this. And as I said, I mean, can you when, imagine Joe when, Biden going on any Russian media at yeah. all for any length yeah. of time? Exactly. Putin did it for yeah. ninety minutes. And when people yeah. say that, when people say that Putin had no other options but to do this, well, why didn't he try giving a speech addressed to the U.S. people? Why not? Yeah. Why not? See, and maybe, maybe since you have his cell number, you <laughs> and Lex Friedman, you know, get Lex Friedman together with you guys and go figure this out. I mean, because you're you're fellow who was your mentor or your role model, Cohen, you could pick up where he left off. Well, yes. The problem is Professor Cohen had a um, had a authority, an academic authority, just by virtue of the work he did, you know, pioneering a well, field, an academic does. field. And, and also, and also yeah. you know, being a prominent institution. So that gave him a, a certain reach that at least Michael and I don't have yet. We're... <laughs> Well, but some others, you know, I mean, there's just a half a degree of separation among any of us anymore. You know, the reason I mentioned Lex Friedman is all the MIT crowd know him. Uh He's buddies with Elon and Joe Rogan. I mean, you could make this very quickly, you know, a grassroots, uh, you know, love fest. All right. All right. Well, we'll do our best. Thank you. I I appreciate the suggestion. We're going to leave it there because... uh, this has been a very long show. Thank so, you. Thank you, Lee, for calling in. And thanks to everybody for tuning in tonight. This was great. Michael, any closing words? No, I, I enjoyed it, particularly the international dimension. As Aaron mentioned, uh, he and I are somewhat limited in what we can pick up on here in our purchase in the Northeast. And uh, you know, after this two-plus hours, I'm going to go back to vlogging myself. So uh, I hope <laughs> everyone good. enjoyed Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. Again, tomorrow morning, I'll be back here with Katie Halper for the Useful Idiots calling, if you can join us then. And have a great rest of your day. Bye.